Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Over the past few weeks, we've been doing a lot of coverage about the California wildfires. It's been very destructive, losing whole towns and houses. Everybody has been impacted very harshly by what has been going on. One of the things that came to light, though, during this all was this little-known business of private firefighters. Kim Kardashian and Kanye West hired a private crew to help keep their house safe. That amounts for about 5% of this private firefighter business. The largest sector of this are firefighters that respond to insurance companies. And it became this point where people were saying, oh, you know, the rich have it better, they can buy all these things. It's not so true. If you have the right homeowner's insurance policy, these private firefighters are available to you. To get a little bit more on that, we spoke to Hannah Fry. She's a reporter for the LA Times. And we started by talking about how long this business practice has been going on for. This business has been around for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, but it's really becoming the into the forefront now as these wildfires are getting much worse. There's two different groups. There's private firefighters that are hired and deployed by insurance companies. And then there are other private firefighters that are actually hired by homeowners to protect specific homes. The ones that are hired by the insurance companies make up the biggest segment of these private firefighting companies. They're contracted with about 12 different insurers around the country that offer this as part of their homeowner's insurance policy. So there's been a lot of blowback on both sides. And some of the people that run these companies say, well, you know, we're not just servicing rich people only. You should look for an insurance company that offers this as part of your homeowner's insurance. A lot of what has been going around about this issue is that they were serving, you know, the ultra wealthy and there was a disparity that normal middle class people couldn't afford to have private firefighters protect their homes. So I think that was the point of contention really in this whole discussion. But during my research, what I found was that these companies that provide these resources say, you know, we we do this not only for our wealthier clients, but also for just normal families. And it makes sense for the insurance company and even for the homeowners at the tail end of 2017. With all the fires that happened, they reached nearly $12 billion in insurance claims that made last year's fire season the costliest on record until what happened this year. It's possible that it's going to go up even higher than that. That's exactly what I found in my research, that these private companies and these insurance companies really are dispatching private crews to save homes because it's more expensive to replace it and all of its contents. So there's definitely a benefit for these companies, especially as these wildfires get worse and the claims are going up. How much do these policies cost throughout the article and a few other articles I've seen that AIG, USAA, Chubb, all of these insurance companies have some of these policies available to customers that are in fire-prone areas, but how much would these run? You know, it really depends on the insured value of a home. So it can range anywhere from several thousand dollars to several tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the insured value of the home. And when they're dispatched, what are they doing? I mean, they're going to specific addresses, obviously things that are covered under the insurance policies. If a fire is coming, they'll try to douse the flames. If there's no fire there yet, they spray a lot of the fire retardant. 
just uh, as a preventative measure? I mean, that's mostly what they're doing, right? Yes, they're mostly doing preventative work before the fire reaches the property. Once the fire's right there, there's very little that can be done except for, you know, maybe spray some water to try to douse flames. But really, the bulk of their work is removing brush from around the home that could catch fire or spraying fire retardant on a home that has flames approaching to try to protect and create sort of a, one source described it to me as like a water bubble around a home. So if an ember does fall on a roof, it won't immediately ignite. One of the main companies is called Wildfire Defense Systems. They operate in about 18 states. They obviously have a presence in California. How big are their resources? The fires that just broke out, the Wolseley Hill and the Camp Fires, they had about 100 firefighters, I think of a little bit more dispatched to all three. From what I can tell, their resources seem pretty significant. How has this fared with county firefighters, people that aren't these private services? There has to be some type of coordination running between them, but what's that reaction been like? County firefighters, they have an issue with these private groups, mostly because they say that they don't check in, you know, they don't tell them where they're going to be, and it could possibly create a liability for them. Now, Cal Fire officials, they're a little bit more used to these private crews. They see them a lot as long as they work with them. From what I've heard, they're pretty much okay. But really, these county crews are a little more hesitant to have them in the field just because they could present a life safety issue if they need to be rescued. The big takeaway is that while, yes, homeowners in wealthier areas might have this as part of their insurance policies, if you're in a fire-prone area, there is a good chance that your homeowner's insurance could cover some of this stuff. Or as the president of a wildfire defense system says, if you don't have it, look for an insurer that carries some of this stuff. This is available on a larger scale than more people might think. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the service is available and often people that have it forget that they have it. It's not even something that you call in. Wildfire Defense Systems has a like a dispatch center where they actively monitor fires that break out, much like a traditional fire service would do. Wow. As Jerry Brown had said, this is the new normal, and we've seen it the past few years. The amount of fires, the destruction that the fires cause is growing. It just seems like they'd put more resources behind this as well. Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One of the big political stories of the week was that of President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, pleading guilty to lying to the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2017 about the length and the scope of his work on plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Originally, he said it ended in January 2016, but those talks went well into June 2016 after the presidential campaign had already started. BuzzFeed had some other details saying that these were talks and the president wasn't necessarily privy to these things, but Michael Cohen and his business partner were even considering giving Vladimir Putin a $50 million penthouse in this Trump Tower Moscow that was being built. The story just keeps getting crazier and crazier. We spoke to Kyle Cheney. He's a congressional reporter for Politico. And we started off by talking about this Moscow deal and the timing. The plea was that in a prepared statement to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, Cohen misled them to suggest that his work on trying to get a Trump Tower Moscow built ended in early 2016, when in reality, he, he was working on that deal well into 2016 while Donald Trump was running for president, something Trump has long denied, said I had no relationship with Russia. So it really calls into question a lot of those denials about the president's business relationship with Russia while he was running for office. He initially said that the Moscow project, all those talks ended in January. 
but it went all the way up until June. There was that. He also, uh, Cohen said he had never agreed to travel to Russia in connection with the project and never considered asking the president to travel for the project. But that was also a lie. There was conversations about that. And I think the other thing was Cohen said he didn't recall any Russian government responses in connection to this. And that was also a lie. He did get a like an email back and a 20-minute phone call with a yep. Russian official about the project. And what this does is it just calls into question everything that people in, in the Trump universe said about this stuff during the campaign in real time. And then since then, since the Russia investigation got underway, everything has to be revisited in light of these, these new facts. All the president and his allies say, well, Cohen's a liar, so you can't trust what he's saying anyway. There's some other interesting things that came up in this. Cohen said that he did speak to the president about this about three times. Mm -hmm. and Trump family members. So that seems to implicate maybe his sons. Maybe the most interesting part of all of this is what we don't know, because this is just scratching the surface, really, of what Cohen is admitting to publicly. But he's still cooperating with Mueller and must have had to uh, admit to some other facts or provide some other facts and documents and details that would be valuable to Mueller in order to secure this plea deal in the first place. So there's still a lot of shoes to drop here. Yeah, I think the report said that he spent more than 70 hours in interviews with the special counsel. There's a treasure trove of stuff going on there that could possibly still surface. Right. And again, Mueller does not cut plea deals with people who can't provide valuable information in other respects. So what that information is, we don't know. But Cohen was involved in everything Trump did up until he was excommunicated from Trump's orbit. Yeah. And this just complicates things for the president so much. As you were saying, President Trump had constantly been saying, I have no business dealings with Russia. All the while, this thing was kind of going on. And apparently the deal died the day that the Washington Post broke the story about Russian hacking into the Democratic National Committee. That's when they said, "Okay, no more. We're not going to do any possible deals because this is just going to complicate everything. Right. And it also coincided with Trump securing the nomination, the Republican nomination for president, too, which probably made pursuing business deals even more untenable. But you're right. It's this confluence of events. The the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians happened on June 9th of 2016, which is right before this deal fell apart. So so who knows what forces were at work uh, behind the scenes there? So what has been the uh, outside reaction to this? The president was calling him weak and a liar. Same thing coming out of Rudy Giuliani. They definitely, that's their play here is to say, look, Cohen's unreliable. He wants to deal with prosecutors, so he'll say whatever he needs to say. But at the same time, Giuliani put out a statement saying, well, the president's version of events is largely similar to what Cohen is now saying. So it's a little bit confusing as to what message they're trying to send. And it's giving fodder for Democrats in Congress who say, hey, we got to investigate all this and bring these people back before Congress and really dig into it. Yeah, that came specifically from uh, Adam Schiff, incoming House Intelligence Chairman, saying that all this does is we need to continue the probe into the Trump organization's financial links to Russia. And the other interesting thing that happened is Rudy Giuliani mentioned it. He said it's so weird that the special counsel and Michael Cohen did this just as the president was leaving for his meeting with world leaders at the G20 summit. The president canceled his meeting, his planned meeting with Vladimir Putin there. The ostensible reason for the cancellation is that there's an ongoing dispute between the Kremlin, between Russia and Ukraine over Russia's detention of some Ukrainian boats. But it also is convenient politically for the president not to be in the same camera shot with Vladimir Putin at, at this particular right. moment when his relationship is being called into question again. Does it seem like the Mueller probe could be ending soon? I, I know they lost Paul Manafort as mm-hmm. a cooperating witness. They still have Michael Cohen, but it just seems like everything's kind of starting to tick up again. You know, you never know here. It seems like certain chapters are reaching their climax here, uh, things related to Roger Stone and other some of the other president's other close allies. But you never know. This whole Cohen episode 
we didn't even know it existed until, really until today. <laughs> right. So who knows what else we don't know is out there. We don't know what we don't know. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime, Oscar. Thank you. There was huge science news this week when a Chinese researcher announced that he had used a gene editing technique called CRISPR to alter embryos. He then implanted them in the womb of a woman and gave birth to twin girls this month. Their names were Lulu and Nana. So many things have happened since the story broke on Monday. China now has said that it has suspended all the work of this scientist who claims to have created these world's first genetically edited babies, saying that his conduct appeared to be unethical and in violation of Chinese law. People are calling this crazy human experimentation. The bottom line of this is that this research does not adhere to the academic community's line of morality and ethics. So he's getting a lot of flack. But we spoke to Brianna Sack. She's a BuzzFeed news reporter about why this researcher did what he did in the first place. This researcher edited these two embryos when they were three and five days old, and he did that to be able to thwart off the HIV or AIDS virus because, as this researcher said, their dad had the virus. And so, you know, it was more about preventing, saving their kids from potentially being born with with this virus. So that, that was kind of the whole premise behind this very controversial experiment. The researcher said that this is a big problem in China, so that's why he wanted to tackle this. And, and in a lot of developing countries, yeah, you know, he, he did say that it, you know, people don't get jobs or they're turned away from, you know, their communities for having this. So it, it is, a, you know, a public health crisis. Yeah. And it's not to cure or prevent the inherited disease, but the ability to resist possible future infection of this. Let's talk about in the United States, it is illegal to do this type of gene editing. China, it's not the case. That's why he did this. But there's a lot of backlash to this, including from the university where he works. He's currently on leave there, but even they are launching an investigation now into what was being done. Right. Yeah. It crosses a lot of ethical boundaries for many major scientists. So it was a huge, it erupted overnight because it was, you know, Monday in China. So it really just like exploded overnight here. And the reason why it is so controversial is because it could have really unintended dangerous health effects or damage their DNA. And then those kids might pass on this damaged DNA and just the ramifications. Like It's just so unknown, like what editing genes can mean for future generations. And it's also, it kind of goes into this whole like designer babies, like does right. it open the door for parents to be able to like design their kids before they're even really people. And then it poses the question, like what right do we have to edit our own species? And yeah, it, it's long yarn unravels. The big worry is that if you, edit the gene now, you could pass on those edited things and basically change the genetic code of humans further on down the line. Uh, All these unintended consequences, things you don't know. That's the big worry there. Let's talk a little bit about how he did this, because as I said, he he didn't do this in conjunction with the university that he works for. He was kind of secretive about this, only announcing now after the babies were born exactly what was going on. The couple that got pregnant, it happened through normal IVF procedures. The father had HIV, the mother did not. They take the sperm out, they clean it, they infuse it to the egg, and they create the embryo. And then, as you said, three to five days later is when they use the CRISPR tool to edit those genes. 
Yeah, so they disabled a gene called the CCR5 when the twins were three to five day old embryos. And so that is kind of like, as he described it, like a doorway where the HIV virus can potentially enter. So he, they just kind of removed it and that would make them immune. And then after that, they waited a few days and then they watched the embryos just to make sure they were still healthy. And once they deemed them that they were, they put the embryos into the their mother Grace's uterus and then just like continued to monitor her pregnancy. And it was a healthy pregnancy and she gave birth to the twins earlier this month. And he actually recruited this couple along, I think with like six others. I think he was working with seven from a Beijing-based AIDS advocacy group. And according to the AP, they edited 16 out of 22 embryos and 11 were used in six attempted implants. And then this was like the first pregnancy. And so the way that this kind of came about was they put some of their research online and then MIT's technology review noticed this. And then the AP kind of like I think the AP would have been working with him before and right. it was, you know, and so they weren't expecting to publish this this story. So it definitely came about in like a very bizarre, it's seemingly secretive way. It hasn't been verified yet. You know, it wasn't submitted to a journal. So experts couldn't review it. So no one really even knows, like he's kind of the only one who's saying that this happened. It's right. like no one really knows yet if it's true and they haven't checked his work. So yeah, there was a U.S. scientist that said he took part in some of that work. That U.S. scientist had previously worked with a Chinese scientist, so they, you know, they knew each other. They had a relationship, but as you said, they, nothing has been confirmed yet. They have to go back and double check all the work. Going back to kind of these uh, the ethical standards on this, you know, a lot of people are saying that it's not fully clear if some of these couples fully understood the purpose and the potential risks and benefits from this because some of the consent forms from the project were labeled AIDS vaccine development. So it, mm, it yeah. was kind of murky wording for the couples and, and whether they understood what, what they were getting into. Even for like scientists, like the, 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 that community, it's still incredibly murky and very divisive because as we were mentioning earlier, no one really knows the potentially harmful genetic changes that this could make. And there is really scant data overall in from CRISPR and like his team. Right. So it is a little concerning and also just totally wild to, to think about that this is this was just kind of happening on the side. <laughs> This CRISPR tool, this gene editing tool has been gaining more notoriety in recent years and its effectiveness and how easy, I mean, so to speak, it is to to use this tool. And very well, this could be the biggest science story of the year if this proves to be true. Yeah. And also, you know, what what does that mean? And should scientists have the ability to do this. I think in 2016, the director of the NIH was very adamant about the fact that he doesn't think that scientists anywhere should be able to have that ability because as we were talking about earlier, he was saying, what right do we as humans to be able to go in and really edit our species? And when did we get to that point? And I think that's like a, a very large question that ethically we should be talking about. For his part, the Chinese researcher did say, I feel a strong responsibility that it is not just to make a first, but also to make it an example. And he said that society will decide what to do next. And this is going to cause a ton of discussion over what to do next. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep, thanks. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.